I have heard a number of the, the leaders speak following the, the Uluru Statement. And one thing I was really struck by in one of uh, Noel Pearson's speeches is he singled out one of my colleagues, Sally Scale, Pinjadara woman, and talked about how this Uluru Statement was for her son, Walter, and his future. And then he singled out me and my son, Wolf, and said, this is also for his future. And that's the thing, the, the the potential for these reforms to lead to a flourishing for First Nations people in a way that we have not seen, certainly in our generations, is not just about better policy outcomes and potentially better economic outcomes and better outcomes for our, our employees. It's about having a flourishing of the oldest living culture in our nation that we can be proud of and be part of and celebrate and know that we were part of making that history. We really like working with clients who want to meet their purpose, grow their purpose in anything where marketing can add to people's quality of life or, as we say, marketing for good. Welcome to Marketing for Good. This special podcast episode was originally recorded as an exclusive webinar where we invited some of our closest contacts, clients and friends to learn more about the Uluru Statement from the Heart its potential impact, and how business can play a role. Our conversation is guided by the voice of our director and founder, Carolyn Lowton. Guest speakers Eddie Sinnott and Gabrielle Appleby have a rich understanding of the Uluru Statement from the Heart, giving both clarity to legal jargon as well as detailed explanations for processes and actions we can take as personal and professional allies. The voice you heard earlier was Gabrielle Appleby. We would like to warmly welcome you to this special episode of Marketing for Good. Welcome to everybody who's joined our event today. It's absolutely terrific to have you all on. I'm on Gadigal land today um, and I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the traditional owners of all the lands on which we meet today and also pay my respects to Elders past and present. Our session today is focused on understanding the Uluru Statement from the Heart implications for organisations and businesses, and how we can support the statement as we move towards a referendum next year. So I'm delighted to welcome our two speakers today. Eddie Sinnott is a Womba Womba First Nations lawyer and researcher. Eddie is a lecturer at Griffith University Law School and a research fellow at the Indigenous Law Centre, UNSW. Eddie's worked with the Uluru Dialogue and the Indigenous Law Centre since 2018. His research focuses on Indigenous peoples and the law, especially public and constitutional law. Welcome, Eddie. And we also have Professor Gabrielle Appleby, who researches and teaches in public law at the Faculty of Law and Justice at UNSW. She's the Director of the Judiciary Project and the Gender and Public Law Project, the Constitutional Consultant to the Clerk of the Australian House of Representatives and a member of the Indigenous Law Centre. In 2016-17, Gabrielle worked as a pro bono constitutional advisor to the regional dialogues and the First Nations Constitutional Convention that led to the Uluru Statement of the Heart. Welcome to you both. We're just absolutely delighted to have you both with us and thank you for um, in advance for sharing your knowledge. Eddie, welcome and thank you for joining us again. Could we start by asking you to give us a brief overview of the Uluru Statement from the Heart and its key pillars? Uh, thank you. I'll, I'll try and be brief. <laughs> If, if it's possible. Um, I just quickly acknowledge uh, the traditional owners where I am today, the uh, Yugger and Turrbal people in Brisbane, where I'm fortunate enough to, to live and work. Uh, brief history of the Uluru Statement and its key pillars. Um, 
I think it's important to note at the outset, in one way or another, constitutional change and reform has been a target for Indigenous peoples since Federation. Um, so in many ways, what we're doing uh, isn't new. Um, it's, it's, it's as old as, as the Federation itself, and in many ways before that, um, before Federation into colonial society as well. Um, so when we talk about some of the fundamental principles that underpin the change and the Uluru Statement about the recognition of the rightful place of First Nations and about the uh, particular interests and issues that impact us uh, and being able to have a say on that, um, you know, that, that key kind of principle and driving force of being able to uh, drive change and establish a more uh, foundational structural relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples in Australia uh, has been around for a long time. The Uluru Statement, however, is, um, I think, you know, the most recent, but perhaps the most important in our history um, iteration of that. So it came about in response or as part of the, the last kind of two decades of focus on constitutional reform. Uh, but importantly, it came from the first opportunity that our community had to speak to itself about what constitutional change they wanted to see. And that's why um, out of that process, which was uh, 12 regional dialogues or 13 dialogues with one in the ACT as well, a representative cross-section of our community um, based in the traditional um, authority of, of traditional owners, uh, came together, were able to speak to themselves through informed decision-making. So when we talk about uh, consultation or dialogues here, we're talking uh, over multiple days with civics education and informed dialogues so that our community can actually make an informed decision about how they want to progress. And they came together and the, they themselves came out with this sequence and the key pillars of voice, uh, treaty and truth. So the voice to parliament, the structural forms to the constitution of Australia to ensure that we have a say and to you know, it's that perfect, in my mind, the perfect combination of the symbolic and practical recognition and also the Makarata Commission where treaty and truth-telling come in. So achieving those structural forms which have been long overdue, uh, you know, being able to impact the culture of power um, and decision-making that happens uh, towards our people and then also setting our relationship on the right path forward going, going forward so that we can talk about treaty and truth-telling into the future. Thanks, Eddie. That's um, a very clear explanation of something that I think is pretty, you know, could be seen as quite complex. Can you talk us a little bit through um, voice, treaty and truth and just why they're important, why they're important at different times and that type of thing? Yeah, so, I mean, for many people it seems, uh, you know, um, very easy to understand or, you know, it's um, attractive, the idea that we need to have truth-telling or, or treaty first, um, you know, being a, you have to be able to tell the truth before you can, you know, you can heal something or you can do something. But one of the things that come up in the dialogues and, and why it's key to the sequencing is um, that we've been telling our truth for a very long time. It's not as though Australia and Australians haven't known the truth of our history at different times. Uh, it's been the lack of, you know, the structural forms or the empowered position of Indigenous peoples to actually be able to do anything about that. So if you look at all the Royal Commissions we've had, if we look at the Bringing Them Home report, if we look at the Royal Commission to Deaths in Custody, uh, you know, most recently Royal Commissions in the Northern Territory into Youth Detention uh, and whatnot, Indigenous peoples have been telling their truth for a very long time and we kind of get stuck into this cycle, especially in the last 30 years uh, of reconciliation um, post, you know, the failure of the Hawke years to deliver the treaty. So um, truth is important. 
but not you know as important or in the sequence reforms of being able to uh, have our voice heard, be able to empower ourselves in that system and to be able to give meaning to that truth. And that's where treaty also comes in uh, as part of that second part of the reform as well. Uh, there's some hard realities that we have to face as Indigenous peoples as well, uh, meaning we're not at first contact anymore. We're 234 years into you know complicated and complex relationship. Uh, but also what came out of the Uluru Dialogues is that we've been negotiating agreements with government for a very long time, and especially through things like the Native Title Act and whatnot as well. So many people that had been doing that for a long time were exhausted. Uh, they recognised that not everyone's on a level playing field, that we're not all ready to actually enter into a treaty. Treaty is something that's complicated and take a, you know, can take a long time, and you know, rightfully so. And also, um, you know, there's not a lot of agreement or you know, the future isn't exactly clear on what treaty actually looks like today as well. And so that's where voice you know, comes out again. And one of the key things that um, our colleague, Professor Megan Davis, talks about, you know, that really stood out coming out of the Uluru Dialogues, uh, was a lot of the anger from the last two decades of Indigenous affairs in our communities about their voices not being heard, especially through changes to programs such as Indigenous Advancement Strategy, where a lot of funding had been gutted from our communities and a lot of the Aboriginal community-controlled sector um, having a lot of that funding taken away from them and further pressure placed on them. And a lot of emphasis being placed on those, um, you know, more simplistic or, you know, what Professor Davis calls can-keeping exercises around truth-telling that fail to address some of those substantive structural issues. And so voice really comes back to that fundamental kind of linchpin to be able to enable meaningful reform across the board through those other elements of treaty and truth. Um, so it is a sequenced reform, you know, the, the three elements are very important to one another, um, but it's it's voice first to enable, I guess, the structural reforms necessary so that we can have meaningful treaty and truth-telling into the future. Mm, that's really interesting. So is, is voice almost like um, establishing a relationship before you start working on the meat? Yeah, absolutely. To, um, the voice uh, too. To bring Professor Davis up again, who will be a, a large spectre around this conversation, um, the one of the things that come up in the dialogues was a rejection of the idea of reconciliation. And you know, Megan tells the story about um, a lot of the older people saying, "Because we've never really met before, so how can we reconcile a relationship when you know we're still waiting to actually formally meet and establish." You know, what are the parameters of that relationship? How are you actually hearing our voice? How do we negotiate that into the future? Um, there's some really important, you know, parts which Gab can speak to as well about what that means, embedding that in a national constitution, especially one such as, such as ours, and adapted to our local circumstances and how it works and um, being able to have, you know, a permanent mechanism to be able to influence, you know, the decision-making of parliament, but also, you know, more broadly I talk about it, not just being about the text of our constitution, but if we think of the constitution of Australia more broadly as, you know, the cultural institutions that we're part of and having that embedded as the foundation of our relationship going forward so that we can actually have some structure to it so we can't just be dismissed outright, um, you know, and moving past this idea that there's an end point to reconciliation. Um, if there's one thing that people should have learnt, it's that we're not going anywhere after 234 years despite some of the best, best efforts uh, otherwise, and it's something that we should embrace uh, together. And so, you know, the voice especially 
is again that linchpin to be able to establish that structure to our relationship so that we can finally meet after all this time and and have the better foundation for that relationship going forward that um, absolutely you know makes makes sense when you explain it like that um can i ask a sort of a technical question about the treaty is would the treaty be part of a the constitution or it would be separate would we be going back to it for another round of constitutional change or is it really um, I, I, don't, I don't want to confuse too many people technically right we could put whatever we want into our constitution but it there's the political will to be able to do that there's the way it works with the rest of the constitution there's section 128 and how you actually change the constitution and everything else too um, and so the reality of constitutional reform and, you know, the law. So a lot of people in this space do, you know, have a lot of legal hypotheticals about how their preferred reform or how they would like things to happen. Um, and, you know, they miss the key part of the law, which is the political part as well about the actual implication and enforcement of that. Uh, so I think into the future here, treaties will not be in the constitution. They'll be an act of the Commonwealth Parliament. And it's, that's one of the hard realities that many Indigenous peoples and, and some allies to either refuse to accept or, or have trouble accepting is that there's no stepping outside of the Commonwealth these days. You know, if we look at more broadly, uh, the legitimacy of the Australian state, you know, political legitimacy, perhaps there's a question over the moral legitimacy, but it doesn't depend on whether or not it has a treaty with Indigenous peoples. And that's part of that complicated relationship that we're into now after 234 years. So the Uluru statement for me especially is, well, if that's the case and that's that's the reality that we are dealing with, how do we get to a point where we do give meaningful expression to Indigenous sovereignty and existence in this relationship? And that's where the Uluru statement, you know, I think in many ways in its, its powerful kind of simplicity is a much more <laughs> radical statement to be able to get through what has seemingly been an intractable issue to actually provide us a pathway forward to be able to do that. Well, that's a perfect segue, Eddie. Um, for those who haven't actually uh, heard the Uluru Statement itself, we have a short clip that we would like to play now just to bring, bring the statement to life. We gathered at the 2017 National Constitutional Convention, coming from all points of the southern sky, make this statement from the heart. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent islands and possessed it under our own laws and customs. This our ancestors did, according to the reckoning of our culture from the creation, according to the common law from time immemorial, and according to science more than 60,000 years ago. This sovereignty is a spiritual notion, the ancestral tie between the land or Mother Nature and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom, remain attached thereto and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished and coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. How could it be otherwise? 
The peoples possessed a land for 60 millennia, and this sacred link disappears from world history in merely the last 200 years? With substantive constitutional change and structural reform, we believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. Proportionately, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are alienated from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for our future. These dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. Makarata is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. We seek a Makarata Commission to supervise a process of agreement making between governments and First Nations and truth-telling about our history. In 1967, we were counted. In 2017, we seek to be heard. We leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country. We invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. Gabrielle, welcome. Uh, it's great to have you with us as well. Um, can you talk to us a little about um, constitutional enshrinement and constitutional recognition and why that's so important? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me here, Carolyn. And I'm coming in today from the beautiful Gubby Gubby country up in Noosa in Queensland as well. And I'd like to acknowledge country and acknowledge elders. Um, so what is meant by constitutional enshrinement? Um, the importance um, of uh, seeking an enshrined uh, voice um, has really sort of two elements to it. The first is one that Ed has already spoken about, which is um, the... Uh, this is a, um, a process of constitutional recognition and the regional dialogues and the Uluru Statement is First Nations people seeking a form of recognition through structural change from the Australian people through a referendum to change the constitution. Um, so it's not symbolic recognition um, only, uh, there is structural change there, but it is a form of recognition. Um, we have been talking about constitutional recognition for decades, um, but it's been a question of what form of recognition and really the Uluru Dialogues was the first time that First Nations people were able to um, uh, discuss and determine on their own terms what that form of recognition would be. So the first part of the constitutional enshrinement dimension is it's going in the constitution because it's a form of constitutional recognition. Now our constitution 
when it was first um, uh, enacted back in 1900, actively excluded Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. There were provisions in that constitution that excluded Aboriginal people from the power of the Commonwealth, and it excluded Aboriginal people from the reckoning of the people of the Commonwealth with various consequences for resources and elections. Um, 1967, which was referred to to in the Uluru Statement was a referendum in which that, that exclusion was removed. So Aboriginal people um, were not actively excluded from the constitution, but now there is no reference whatsoever. There is an silence in our constitutional document about Aboriginal people. Um, so this, uh, this, this seeking of a First Nations voice is the, is the active inclusion of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, their unique connection to this country, that which is now where the polity of Australia is, um, and uh, but it's on the terms that they are seeking. So that's why it's recognition coming together of two people. As I said, it's more than just recognition though as well, it's structural change. Um, and it calls for the constitutional enshrinement of a First Nations voice. Enshrinement um, is another word for protection or establishment. Um, and so uh, as we see from the Prime Minister's um, draft constitutional provision, we're not seeking a long detailed constitutional amendment. We're seeking a constitutional amendment that establishes the existence of the body, provides um, a level of guaranteed guarantee for the ongoing existence of the body, which was really important for the delegates at the regional dialogues that had a long experience of the establishment and then disestablishment establishment of institutions by government. And that leads not just to um, um, instability, but actually active disempowerment, the establishment, disestablishment, re-establishment um, re of different voices. Um, and so we, we really heard the need for guaranteed stable existence of this new political institution and constitutional enshrinement will fulfill that function. But it will also fulfill the important function of conferring constitutional status authority upon this voice. Um, it's not intended as an institution that will be part of the legislative process and that it will be able to veto bills. It won't, won't have that sort of hard constitutional power. It has the um, objective of making sure there is a seat at the table for First Nations people. Now, in order to give that seat a level of status that they can politically engage with parliament and the government, the constitutional um, uh, establishment provides that status. And of course, constitutional um, establishment only follows a referendum of the Australian people. So the Australian people, if they vote yes at this referendum, will be saying to government and parliament, this is an institution that you need to listen to, right? And so that constitutional status um, uh, follows that constitutional process, which confers more authority and legitimacy. So it has um, that, that, that further um, purpose there. Thank you. That's, um, yeah, I've learned a lot in those last few minutes. Um, thanks for explaining it like that. So um, I've heard in the past um, discussion about, well, should it be voice to government or voice to parliament and um, heard, you know, people say how important the voice to parliament is. And I think that maybe your answer just then kind of explained why voice to government is not really working. Would that be right? Yeah, although both are important, um, and the Uluru Statement, of course, calls for a constitutionally enshrined First Nations voice. Um, and if you go through the, the the records of the the delegate discussions, they're actually seeking yes, a voice to Parliament, but they also appreciate they need to be involved with government, the development of policies that become legislation, um, the uh, the distribution of government funding, um, uh, the 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 application of policy and government decision making, all have huge impacts on um, uh, First Nations people and 
communities. So they appreciate that voice to government is important, but parliament is the ultimate lawmaking authority in Australia. Um, the Commonwealth Parliament, of course, has the capacity to override the legislation in states and territories um, and in relation to um, Indigenous issues um, has uh, been called upon from time to time to do so. We see that playing out, for example, in relation to the Dukang Gorge um, inquiry and the controversy over whether there should have been com uh, greater Commonwealth protection um, uh, in, in, that, in that space. Um, so having a voice to to the Commonwealth Parliament as that ultimate lawmaking authority is a really key aspect of the of, of the reform. Voice to government alone wouldn't be sufficient. You need to be speaking to the final lawmaker. Of course, voice to parliament itself wouldn't be enough uh, in and of itself either because you need to be involved in those preliminary discussions as well. So it's quite a, um, a sophisticated understanding of how government policy development and legislation works. It's a voice to parliament and a voice to government. Um, and that's really clear when you look at um, uh, the delegate uh, um, discussions uh, um, that sit behind the Uluru Statement. All right. Thank you. Um, so you mentioned, um, or we just kind of uh, started to talk about the process. Um, when, with, in terms of a practical kind of understanding, what's going to happen between now and a referendum? What's the sort of key steps that we're going to go through? Yeah, look, so we don't actually have a precise date for a referendum. We know that the Albanese government is committed to um, putting this to a referendum in its first term. Um, uh, given the nature of electoral cycles, that's likely to happen probably in the second half of next year. And there seems to be sort of indications from the Prime Minister towards that time frame. Um, we know that the Minister for um, uh, Indigenous Australians, Linda Burney, and the Special Envoy for the Uluru Statement, Senator Pat Dodson, have put together a, um, two working groups. One that is specifically looking at the, the steps that are needed towards referendum, which is known as, called the Referendum Working Group, which is a, a group of just over 20 First Nations leaders um, across Australia coming together to work on these um, steps. And then there's a wider um, group, uh, which is about engagement. Um, uh, uh, so that's the Engagement Working Group, I think it's it, it's called. Um, and that's uh, doing some of the work that's needed around community engagement and public education. Um, so the type of steps that these working groups will be working with the, the minister and government towards are um, finalising the actual constitutional amendment. Um, and we've been doing a lot of work at the Indigenous Law Centre as well in relation to this step. Um, the, the, the challenge here is we need to have a constitutional amendment that is simple and clear for the Australian people to be able to vote on, but also that captures the aspirations of the Uluru Statement. We don't want to make it too narrow or water it down. So it doesn't, it's not really a question of whether we accept the Uluru Statement. It needs to capture those aspirations. And of course, it needs to be legally and technically sound. And so you need to pressure test it with lots of judges and, and barristers and, and, and legal practitioners to, uh, to see whether the technical aspects are sound. So the amendment itself has to be settled um, and we've got some draft wording from the Prime Minister but those that work is ongoing. Um, the referendum question itself also has to be settled. Um, for many Australians, they will vote probably not necessarily going into the detail of the constitutional amendment, but they will read the question and they'll have some general understanding. And so the, the, the question at the referendum will also need to be settled um, uh, before we go to um, referendum. Um, and that referendum question is can be quite controversial. Some people claim that the, uh, the language that was used to describe the model in the Republic referendum in 1999 was one of the reasons it failed and it, it, it contributed to a dividing the yes vote. Um, uh, so that that language of the of the question is a really important one. 
Um, uh, then there's a question that we were discussing right at the start of the the, the um, uh, uh, of, of the webinar today, which is around um, the rules for conducting the referendum. Um, what can government spend its money on? What sort of yes no information? Who um, uh, is putting that yes no information into the public sphere when it's government funded? Is there some sort of expert panel or fact check that is making sure that information is objective um, uh, and not misleading um, or deliberately misinformed? informing um, the public. Um, that's a really important part of um, uh, getting ourselves ready um, for a referendum. You know, we haven't had a referendum for more than 20 years since the 1999 attempts to change the preamble and republic. We haven't had a successful referendum since 1977. So we need to modernise the rules for how we go about referendums. And there's lots of international experience that we can learn for, from um, to, uh, to, to, to operate in a world um, which is so different. Um, and of course, social media and technology being a key part of that difference. Um, so then, of course, the final kind of big step is the big community education um, uh, rollout that needs to happen. And this is a small part of that. Um, we just need to talk about it. There needs to be available information. Um, some of that will be government available information. Um, uh, as I just said, there'll be some funding for that. And they're just working out the specifics of that. Um, but of course, a lot of the education campaigns, as we've seen in, 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 in previous um, uh, uh, processes, most recently, um, the same-sex marriage plebiscite, not technically a referendum, but so much of this is community-led. And that's what we're, that's a big step in the process that we, we're going to see before we get to referendum. That's great, uh, Gabrielle. Thank you. And I think um, a lot of us on the call, would um, we're going to come to it in a little while, but love to know how we can support getting the message out. Um, there's obviously a few of us marketers on the call and, you know, we hope that we can tap into our capabilities um, in that regard. Um, just uh, to ask, um, I suppose a little bit more generally, Eddie, if people um, want to support the process before we start talking about, you know, the business side of things, just in general, what are some of the things that people can do? Uh, well, if you're brave enough to be on social media, uh, please follow us and engage and share as much as you can. Uh, it may not seem like much, but it does help, uh, especially when we consider, you know, one of our bigger tasks for the coming 12 months um, is kind of not controlling, but informing how the media represents this reform as well. And so there are a lot of journalists and media involved in social media and they get a lot of their information from there too. Uh, but sharing, engaging, uh, ulurustatement.org is our official home of, of the Uluru Dialogue. It has a lot of fantastic information. It has the story of the dialogues that uh, myself and Gab have already spoken about, how they came about. Um, so there's a lot of information there that you can sign up to our mail list and um, be continually updated, but you can also engage with and share between your own networks um, you know, I, I like to think of it, we're all members of communities at various different levels at home with our family, in the workplace, with our friend groups, uh, wherever it is. So just having the conversations yourself, sharing that information uh, more broadly uh, and engaging with it there. Um, they seem like very simple, perhaps not uh, impactful uh, measures, but they're the measures that have gotten us to where we are today. Uh, from the original rejection of the Uluru Statement uh, from Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, who has now also changed his mind and is supporting the referendum uh, and the Yes campaign, um, you know, to getting to the point where we were, um, you know, I still get goosebumps thinking about it. Prime Minister, you know, Anthony Albanese 
uh, with his first words uh, on, on election night, um, you know, declaring full support for the Uluru Statement coming through a referendum. Uh, so it does, it does matter. And um, I guess it's one of those things that we talk about a lot where uh, the Uluru Statement from the Heart was issued to the Australian people, to you. It wasn't, you know, necessarily uh, just given to politicians so they can run away and hide it away in the bureaucracy or in government or in the, um, you know, down in parliament down there. And it's the Australian people, individuals, you know, community groups, organisations, um, all the way up to the big corporates and, and more that have um, lifted and carried us and helped us get to this point. Uh, so any of that and as much of that you can do uh, is, is greatly appreciated. Good. Thank you. And I know that um, Nicholas just added that website to the chat, allerustatement.org. Uh, um, and we're going to, um, I've got one or two more questions for Eddie and Gabrielle, and then we're going to throw open to um, the audience. If you've got any questions, please feel free to start adding them to the chat. Um, so uh, our audience today are here in their professional capacity, and we wanted to spend some time discussing what the implications might be for business, as well as how organisations can support the quest for constitutional recognition of the voice. So I might ask you both, perhaps if I start um, with you, Eddie, and then um, then we'll um, to you, Gabrielle, what are some of the ways that we as organisations and as a business community can play a role in support the voice to parliament? Um, well, I, you know, I often tell audiences like this, and I was speaking at a Telstra event uh, recently, that business and corporations and you know, organisations more broadly play an important role uh, in society. Um, you know, the, there's a belief or sometimes, you know, a push to try and separate that out and say, you know, you run a business, that's it, you're not involved. But, you know, society and our communities are obviously much more intimately connected than that. Um, and so I think you have an important role about the kind of community that we live in, the kind of community we want to live in, the kind of society that we want to be a part of and, and the future that we want to be a part of. Um, you know, having a better Australia is good for it's good for business. It's good for our communities. It's good for our employees. It's good for for everyone. And and this is absolutely aimed at that. And I I think you know this, there's been a couple of uh, you know talking heads lately um, dismayed at the support that corporate Australia has offered to to this reform. But I think it just goes to show how much it does makes sense like business understands it they're not stuck to three-year ideological political cycles they're thinking about the future and whether it's this issue or you look at climate change or you look at any other issue that is an important social issue for for us as a society um you know business absolutely has an important role to play in in leading and i don't think uh you should feel that you have to shy away from that or um un underplay that in in, in, in any way um, so I would encourage that conversation and encourage you uh, to take up that responsibility and to engage with this important reform. Um, you know, I describe it as our, our foundational issue. So it's 234 years in the making. And, um, you know, how amazing that we all have this opportunity to be part of history, to, to change this for the better. That's such a nice way to think about it um, as an opportunity for us all. And I think, you know, that really rings true what you said. You know, business, of course, is business or organisations. You know, they've got their purpose and so on. Um, but they've also got an, you know, so many employees, mm. <laughs> a lot of employees out there, as well as, you know, our customers and clients. So um, there's a lot of different ways that we um, we are an important 
part of the fabric. Gabrielle, what um, would you like to add any um, thoughts in terms of what some of the ways, you know, business or organisations, I know we've got some health organisations on the call, um, how, are there any other ideas that you've got in terms of how we can support this? Yeah, look, um, uh, I just wanted to say one um, additional point uh, following on from Ed before I get to that specific question, um, which is the, as a non-Indigenous Australian, um, the generosity of the Uluru Statement is just overwhelming for me. Um, and uh, I have um, heard a number of the, the leaders speak um, following the, the Uluru Statement. And one thing I was really struck by in uh, one of uh, Noel Pearson's speeches is he singled out um, one of my my colleagues, Sally, Sally Scott, a Pinjadara woman, and talked about how this Uluru statement was for her son, Walter, and his future. And then he singled out me and my son, Wolf, and said, this is also for his future. And that's the thing, the, the, the potential for these reforms to lead to a flourishing um, for First Nations people in a way that we have not seen, um, in our certainly in our generations, um, uh, is not just about better policy outcomes and potentially better economic outcomes and, 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 and better outcomes for our, our employees. It's about having um, a flourishing of the oldest living uh, culture in our nation that we can be proud of and be part of um, and celebrate and know that, as as, as as Ed said, know that we were part of making that history. Um, so I just I just wanted to um, uh, share that as well. Um, to become a little bit more pragmatic and answer your specific question, Carolyn, um, look, one thing I worked with um, Eddie and others at the Indigenous Law Centre to develop the supporters kit, and one of the things that we realised is that um, every organisation has its own way that it connects with people, and what we try to encourage people to do um, is to use those um, those existing channels um, and to become informed themselves about the Uluru Statement and then to um, uh, use the channels, you know, and Juntos is a fantastic example. You have this webinar and podcast series and here we are using those channels to talk about the Uluru Statement. Um, but you might have newsletters, you might have um, uh, uh, offices in which the public are often coming into and you can make information available there. Um, it might be that you can use pre-existing events to provide information. As I said, every, every organisation has a way it speaks to people. That's the way in which organisations and businesses work. Um, and so those channels are ready-made for, for, for um, uh, developing that communication. Um, I would emphasise that one of the important things, of course, is to inform yourself. Um, and as we get to the pointy end of a referendum campaign, there's going to be a lot of information in the public sphere um, in relation to concerns people might have or misunderstandings people might have. Um, and places like the UlaruStatement.org, the supporters kit, but also the FAQs um, webpage on that um, uh, website is a really great starting point um, so that you feel that you have the information to respond when people may raise these types of concerns because I think it's a really important part of that conversation that they're not dominated by questions and misinformation but they but it is dominated by information. Thanks Gabrielle there's some great practical tips um, and guidance that's terrific. Um, if you have got a question you'd like to ask pop it in the chat um, and we'll come to that in just a minute um, but I just also did want to touch on this. Perhaps this is one for you, Eddie. Um, we've got quite a number of clients um, on the call uh, who work in the health or education space. Um, and I, we just thought they might be interested to hear your thoughts on what we've discussed today. So the voice to parliament and constitutional recognition in terms of how that might impact things like closing the gap 
and improving health outcomes for Aboriginal Australians. Yeah, I, I think um, it's important to take us back to the to the regional dialogues. Um, you know, they're the mandate for for the reform for for the work that we that Gab and I do through the Uluru Dialogue and the and Indigenous Law Centre. And they they were very strong in their in their experience and their feelings that there was no current group or structure that represented them and their voice well enough in their communities. So that has a lot to do with the history of things like the Indigenous Advancement Strategy and the gutting of those kind of communities. It also has a lot to do with the history of the kind of reconciliation politics and um, having had ATSIC abolished as well. So in that kind of post-ATSIC era, a lot of our, you know, even the community controlled sector, we're lumped with a lot of extra responsibility, um, have progressively been lumped with more and more responsibility and less and less resources. And, you know, that's true for the new closing the gap arrangement and agreement too. We saw a lot of the uh, reporting mechanisms and responsibility for that uh, pushed back onto community and to the, you know, uh, regional levels itself rather than the Commonwealth taking a big uh, role in this. And, and again, this is something that Professor Davis talks about as, as well. The, the promise and the hope of the 1967 referendum was that the Commonwealth would get involved and be at the table. And what we've seen over the last kind of two decades is a um, kind of a stepping back from that and a pushing that back onto the community uh, to be more and more responsible for, for issues that are really, you know, well beyond the ability of individuals and communities themselves to be able to address. So what it means, I think, is enhancing the work that you do and, and enabling a partner who is the self-determined control community, the you know, Indigenous peoples empowered themselves to be able to achieve those goals. If, if we look at closing the gap, uh, I guess, you know, to put it bluntly, it's failing. Um, it's, it's been failing since it started. Um, my personal opinion and, and my experience is, is we could throw another, you know, people like to talk about the billions of dollars I've thrown at. You could double the amount of money that's thrown at closing um, the gap and it still wouldn't make much of a difference because it's the fundamental way that the decisions are structured about the way things are done that hasn't changed. So even under the last uh, revamped closing the gap uh, initiative that we saw under the last government and coalition of peaks, um, you know, we saw the government immediately ignoring the coalition of peaks and policy decisions after they promised to, you know, find a new way of doing things. Uh, so there's all those kind of issues that impact the role that, you know, different health organisations, education bodies and stuff work with in our communities. It's unfair to expect too much of, you know, those individual organisations which has been placed onto their shoulders and also to continue to make these decisions and try and address these issues in a policy setting and in a broader cultural institutional setting where the rightful place of First Nations is not recognised and where their uh, you know, rightful ability and they're not empowered to be able to make the proper decisions. Um, you know, Gab already mentioned Duke and Gorge. It's a perfect example more broadly, especially in the cultural heritage space and the mining resource sector of... Um, you know, not a piece of legislation saying you can go ahead and blow this up and destroy it, but of just the vacuum that occurs in these kind of spaces where the regulatory framework enables these things to happen. And for me, that's very much the same as what continues to happen in closing the gap. And, you know, whilst it's not pointing the finger at any of the organisations and saying that, you know, no one represents and no one, you know, is really there to carry that burden, it's saying that those organisations shouldn't have to do that either. 
we should have our own voice. We should be able to be heard. We should be able to control that. And then that will enable Indigenous peoples to actually be able to work better with those organisations. Those organisations be able to have a better idea and an informed uh, process to how they go about doing their work through their relationship with the Indigenous community and be able to build from that forward. And that's where, you know, for me, the Uluru Statement from the Heart is very much a line in the sand to say, <laughs> Um, enough talk, enough of this other kind of business. If we are serious about we're going to change things, we're going to do things differently, then this is the way to do that. Thanks, Eddie. That's a very um, uh, moving way of explaining it, I suppose, um, on what's a really big challenge. Um, and it sounds, I suppose, if I have understood right, that empowerment's a key part and also someone... Sort of the, well, the federal government taking a leadership position and um, and really um, having an overarching structure rather than everybody trying to do their own thing on the ground at a, or at a regional level. <clears throat> We've had some great um, so thank you. We've had some great um, very interesting questions come through on the chat. So let's um, move to that. Um, the first one is, out of curiosity, is there a strong voice against the Uluru Statement? And if so, what are their arguments? Um, who should I throw, th throw to for that? Gabrielle. Sure, I'm happy to, to, to speak to it. Um, the, you know, we, we have um, seen um, a number of arguments that have been developed, um, not necessarily against um, the voice proposal, but with concern about what the proposal is. And so that would sort of coalesce eventually into a, into a no campaign. Um, uh, there are both Indigenous and non-Indigenous um, people expressing concerns in relation to the Uluru Statement. Um, uh, uh, so one of the concerns um, that we have heard, for example, in, uh, from Senator Lydia Thorpe has been around the sequencing and concerns around sovereignty um, and whether there is a ceding of sovereignty um, uh, through constitutional change that recognises First Nations people um, and uh, her concern that she wants to pursue treaty as a, as a priority. Now, um, as Ed has uh, spoken about at the start of the of the webinar, um, the sequencing around voice, treaty, and truth was very carefully deliberated on uh, in the. Um uh, in the dialogues. It wasn't something that, that was chanced upon around sequencing um, and that a lot of careful thought has been undertaken in close consultation and dialogue with First Nations people across Australia. And that's the, the position uh, that, um, uh, that, 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 is, that has been uh, determined. And we know from the Greens' positions and from um, Senator Thorpe's uh, clarification that she will be supporting um, the, the voice, um, uh, even though it's not her preferred sequencing and she wants to see treaty pursued as well. So Again, it's not a, a strong no, but there are concerns that, that are expressed there. Um, another concern that we see expressed is in relation to um, the detail of, of the, the voice. Um, uh, as I spoke uh, earlier, I talked about um, uh, constitutional enshrinement not, not being a sort of an additional sort of 10 pages in the constitution, but a quite an elegant small provision that enshrines the, that establishes the voice and establishes its primary function. And there will be um, a piece of legislation that sits behind that provision um, that sets out the detail for membership, for procedures, um, uh, um, for any additional functions. Now, there is a concern from some that we don't know enough about what the detail of the, what that legislation would be. Um, we do know quite a lot of detail about how that voice would be fleshed out 
there have been a number of processes. There's the regional dialogues themselves. They talked a lot about how they wanted to see this voice fleshed out. There's been a joint parliamentary committee um, that was co-chaired by Julian Lisa and Patrick Dodson that heard also about um, how that detail would be fleshed out. And of course, most recently under the Morrison government, there was a co-design process led by um, Tom Karma and Marcia Langdon, which was specifically looking at how what this voice would look like. And through those various processes, you can get a very good understanding of what the what legis what the legislation would look like um, to uh, enact um, the voice. Um, there are still legitimate concerns, particularly from um, Indigenous communities, to make sure that whatever voice is enshrined um, and, and ultimately legislated is one that genuinely represents them as, and is with, legitimate within those communities. And that's a concern that we continue to work with government to seek their guarantee that they that membership of the voice will be self-determined by First Nations people. Um, uh, so that's that's a that's a concern about the voice, not necessarily a no campaign. Um, Look, we do see some uh, individuals coming out strongly against the voice, but really these are quite minor uh, voices, albeit not, not unimportant voices. Of course, Senator Pauline Hanson has launched what she calls the No Campaign. She is concerned about racist divisions in the Constitution, um, uh, uh, a campaign that fails to appreciate, of course, the um, uh, place of First Nations people within our polity, um, but also fails to recognise um, the, the, um, the constitutional place of First Nations at the moment, which is that they are the only people subject to what's called the racist power, a power to make laws on the grounds of race. And so it is already, um, it's, it's responding to a, a constitutional um, position. We did see for a while an argument that was developed initially by Deputy, then Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce and adopted by the Prime Minister um, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, that this would create a third chamber, that this would restructure the way laws are made and um, potentially undermine the parliament's power. Um, but we've seen... Um, We've seen uh, Barnaby Joyce uh, step back from that position after the former Chief Justice of the High Court said, that's not what's happening here. That's not what the voice is about. Um, and Barnaby said, no, that's that's okay. I'll, I'll accept it's not a third chamber. And most recently, um, uh, Malcolm Turnbull wrote a, a really long, quite moving op-ed in The Guardian indicating that he was wrong to reject the Uluru Statement and that he will be voting yes and that it's not establishing a third chamber. It's establishing an important seat at the table for first. Nations people, and it has a really um, a real possibility to produce really practical, beneficial outcomes for the nation. So th that's a little sort of gamut of the the arguments you might hear um, uh, uh, to give you a bit of a taste of, of of what a no case might look like. As I said, many of them are not outright no arguments, but around sort of detail of the of the proposal. I'm just going to add, if that's okay, um, I think Gab's done a very good job of what I would describe as being uh, the genuine concerns versus perhaps some of the more disingenuous concerns out there in the community about the reform. And um, to put it bluntly to you all, you have to be able to exercise your judgment to make an informed decision. And what Gab spoke about, about being informed and the, you know, having important information so that you don't you know, people aren't getting caught up in the misinformation and whatnot out there is very important too. So accessing those resources. And I guess to put it bluntly, not all opinions are equal, <laughs> despite, you know, uh, what some people would have, you believe. Uh, some people are very loud, uh, but not necessarily representative as well. And some people have other agendas uh, in their opposition to this. 
that are run along political lines. And I think one of the things uh, Roy RC, who's been involved uh, said a while ago, and it rings in my head still that we don't want a blue voice, a red voice, or a green voice. We want a black voice. Um, you know, it really is above. This this really shouldn't be a partisan issue, as some people have tried to divide it down political lines. Either it's it's an Australian issue, it's for Australians, it's for our future, and I think um, you know seeking out information. Um, ensuring that you're informed and ensuring that you're sharing with uh, others as well. And that's not to say that, you know, you shouldn't be asking genuine questions or concerns. And, you know, one of the ones that does come up a lot that Gab kind of touched on a little bit as well about people having concerns about its impact on our democratic system and about how parliament works. Um, you know, they're all very good, important questions and reasons to be concerned. And it's something that the, the delegates themselves understood is something that this reform is adapted to fit and work with our democratic system of governments. It's, you know, it's not going to interfere or change the way, um, or take anything away from parliament or, you know, the structure of the constitution. It's, it's simply establishing that, that rightful recognition and an important, you know, structural function there for Indigenous peoples to be able to advise and to enhance our system of democratic governance, not to challenge it. Thank you. Uh, we've got two more questions. I know we're getting, um, probably only got about five more minutes, but let's try and get through them both. Um, the first one from Stephen, are you confident that the referendum will be successful? If so, what is it that we can all do to develop the momentum and do so in a positive and encouraging way to those who are resistant to change? Kind of maybe taps into what you were saying just then, Eddie. You got any thoughts in answer to that question? Yes, I'm confident. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, look, even minimally, right, our, our polling and our research and the work we do shows majority support, and that's a growing majority. And, and we understand and we know from that polling and research that the more information people get, the more people are informed, the more likely they are to vote yes. So there's not too many that are the rusted-on hard no's. There are those that have the, um, you know, genuine concerns that we've just discussed as well. Um, but I think the most simplest thing, again, is having these conversations, making sure you're informed, making sure other people are informed. If you hear people talking about it and, you know, it doesn't sound right or they're spreading, you know, or they've picked up some of the misinformation from some people or something like that, then, um, you know, not being, not saying you have to get into arguments with anyone or anything like that. Um, but, you know, ensuring that you're informed, ensuring you can access those resources and you can drive those conversations yourself. Um, I go back to that point about this being an invitation to the Australian people. We want you to take up the responsibility for that as well now and to be able to help us drive it forward. And it's something that Gab talks about often as well, about the power that will come out of the mandate for a uh, yes vote at the referendum that can't just be ignored. And so when people talk about, you know, will the voice actually have any power or how we'll be able to force anyone to do it, that's a very important uh, factor that Gab often talks about, about the mandate that comes from a yes vote and being able to establish something like that permanently in our constitution. And, um, you know, we can all be part of that in spreading those, you know, the supporter kit, um, you know, as simple as downloading one of our social media tiles and sharing it and saying, you know, I support the Uluru Statement and spreading that information. You can still write to your MP. Um, it, we have a system on our website where it's all automated or you can write your own letter as well. Um, that might be particularly important these days too if your MP is a little unsure or they're not sure what's happening as well or you want to try and you know, reiterate or remind them of your support and why you think this is important as well. Uh, so all of those things that we said before about 
um, you know, spreading the information, accessing the support and the information that we that both Gavin and I spoke about uh, to ensure that um, you know people people remain positive. I, I'm of the view these days that even some of the negative naysayers, um, you know, which is natural, right? We've we've been through some pretty hard times recently. Um, it's, you know, our government hasn't been performing particularly well on transparency and governance types issues. Uh, it's very normal and understandable to be negative about the government or politicians doing anything positive. Um, but it's something that, you know, um, Arnie Pat and, and Megan spoke of, speak about, sorry, about our people kind of, you know, taking up the opportunity to, I guess, suspend disbelief in some of that kind of stuff and believe in the moment of this reform that we can actually be better and do something with this too. Perfect. Thank you so much. Look, the questions are still rolling in and um, I'm so sad to say we've only got a couple more minutes left. Gabrielle, can in 30 seconds, can I ask you, are there any examples um, in other parts of the world where this um, process has been successful? Yeah, um, we know that uh, Ireland, for example, has recently had a successful referendum changing its constitution to um, allow for uh, abortion, um, which was, of course, an extremely divisive policy issue um, uh, and moral issue in that country. They had an amazing process that was informed by citizens' assemblies and a really transparent um, uh, development process. Um, the United States, uh, the states of the United States also often have referendums on policy issues. And one of the things they do is they have citizens juries to talk about how to talk about issues um, and that's one of the things I'd love to see in this particular debate is Australians talking to Australians about the Uluru Statement and sifting through the information the misinformation and then saying you know this is how you talk about it down at the pub kind of thing um, and that's a really uh, I think a, a process we can really learn from. Thank you and look a massive thank you to you both um, Eddie and Gabrielle. Um, you've been so generous with your time and your knowledge and we really appreciate it. And once again, if you want to find those resources, they're at ullarustatement.org. So thank you and I'll now close the session. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Marketing for Good with special guests Gabrielle Appleby and Eddie Sinat. If this podcast helped you understand the Uluru Statement from the Heart, its impact, and how you can play a role, please do share it amongst your community. We would like to thank our guests, Gabrielle and Eddie, for this special session, to our event participants for their engaging questions, and to you for listening. Visit ulurustatement.org to learn more and access their supporter toolkit, where you can download and share thoughtfully designed social tiles with your community. Please see the podcast description for links and further resources. We acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the lands on which we work, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We acknowledge their stories, traditions, living cultures, and their continued connection to land, water, and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present. We really like working with clients who want to meet their purpose, grow their purpose in anything where marketing can add to people's quality of life or, as we say, marketing for good.